Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking cocky seagulls. We're talking fanda ye lobster. And we're talking smellin' like curdled foreskin. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking some mermaid fornication, which... Oh, yeah. I feel like it's the easy one, but I totally had the lobster as my pick. So fuck you, Joe. <laughs> oh, come happening. on. <laughs> it, it is the most popular thing. And you know what? Normally I give you those, but this one I want it for myself because we're going to be breaking out the Defoe accent a couple of times in this episode, I think. You know, but it's I hadn't even practiced my accent yet, so I'm really glad you took it from me in hindsight. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone, we are discussing Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. Um, yes. First time viewing for me, by the way. Yeah, I'm really excited because, uh, folks, we are recording this in advance of having seen The Northman, so this is quite a early recording, but I was very happy that you are going to get to see this before his new one because I do think it's a good primer for the toxic masculinity of the Vikings. Yes, but on that note, and gentle plug, please go listen to our episode on Patreon on The Northman. Um, hopefully mm-hmm. we liked it. <laughs> uh, hindsight 2020? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> But, but Joe, I will confess, um, I didn't realize how, um, well, okay, I don't know why I didn't expect this movie to be very deep, but there's a lot <laughs> going on here. There's a lot of layers to this film that Indeed. I, I think we need some help with this one. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so let's bring in our guest that's waiting in the wings. Uh, everyone, she is the executive producer and mother brain of Omniverse Media, the makers of cinematic storytelling podcasts like the Lovecraftian Black Comedy, the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program, and Lightning Dogs, which is steeped in the glory of 80s and 90s cartoons. And you may also recognize her from our previous episode on Neil LeBute's remake of The Wicker Man way Ooh. back in our first year as a podcast, the year of our Lord 2019. Mm-hmm. Please welcome back Cat Blackard. Hello, everyone. I just had to haul my shark vagina claspers over here oh because God. I heard you were talking about the lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a film to come back for! Uh, I yeah. like that we only have you back for island set movies, Cat. What is up with that? <laughs> I ha- that had not occurred to me. Um, wow, wow. What will it be next time? Ooh, I'm gonna say the Wild Boys. Have y'all seen that one? No. No. Ooh, bunch of boys uh, brutally rape and murder their teacher and are sent to an island where they slowly start to morph into different genders. Oh Yo. my god! Yeah. Um, what? Yeah. And, and yet, battle royale was sitting right there. Okay. <laughs> We're talking about The Lighthouse today, everyone, which is, um, oh boy, this is a movie, is it not? <laughs> it's a movie and it is a film. <laughs> Very true. So, Kat, I'm curious. You ended up picking this film and I'm, I'm intrigued to know what is your story and your attraction to this movie? Mm-hmm. Well, I did mention the, v- the vaginal claspers, didn't I? <laughs> <You> did. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, 
There's also uh, tentacles, and mm-hmm. there's also um, a jaw-dropping performance by Willem Dafoe. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's also a, a sort of, like, production angle that kind of frames it in the style of uh, early 20th century cinema. Yep. Mm-hmm. Basically, it dips into a lot of Stygian depths, if you will, mm-hmm. which is very squarely where my work in horror tends to be. The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program is, of course, rooted in the works of H.P. Lovecraft, who was one of the points of reference that was being studied in the making of this film. Very Began much with so. Poe and then spun off into a bunch of other literary figures. So, mm-hmm. Yes, which we will definitely dabble into with this production history. Uh, and so did y'all, did y'all see this when it, when it was in theaters or I guess in its festival run? I saw it in theaters. Mm-hmm. I had not seen The Witch before. I wanted to. Um, Ooh, so I didn't have okay. a basis for um, uh, Eggers' work at all. And was really struck by the incredible production of it. Right. But I also, it's really, I've been thinking all day about how I could possibly describe how it made me feel. Mm -hmm. It wasn't good. I was kind of mad. But I also, like, had an emotional breakdown in a Cheesecake Factory afterwards, which is not (laughs) normal for me. That's not normal cat behavior. Um, But uh, I don't know. It did something to me. It, it, It elicited a reaction. And... Several years later, I couldn't tell you what that reaction was, but I know that I liked it much better the second time around because mm-hmm. I knew what it was. I knew what I was getting into. Mm. Well, maybe, maybe as we go through the plot today, maybe, well, I mean, I hope we don't have all these horrible feelings come back to you, but maybe you'll be able to kind of recall what or why those feelings struck you the way they did. I'll just sort of uh, return to the scene of the crime, meander through my mindscape, and uh, <laughs> see what disgusting things I pull out of the tide pool of my soul. There we go. <laughs> That's what we're here for. <laughs> I mean, it sounds highly entertaining. So yes, let's do that. Well, <laughs> why don't we jump into the production then? Because I do want to get to this plot as quickly as we can, because there is a lot to unpack here. So, mm-hmm. all right. So the original idea for The Lighthouse actually came about before The Witch um, had even really, well, he had written The Witch, but it was he was still trying to find financing for it and he couldn't. So I'm going right. to assume this is probably the early 2010s, but... um. Basically, Robert Eggers and his younger brother, Max, um, well, Robert wasn't happy with his film industry prospects after spending three years pitching The Witch, which at that point had failed to secure funding. So this was uh, when he was kind of sharing these feelings with Max, Max shared basic ideas from his own screenplay and his vision of a lighthouse set ghost tale um, that reflected his attempts to adapt, as Kat said, Edgar Allan Poe's unfinished story, The Lighthouse. And this is, of course, light hyphen house, because sure. Right. That this appeal to Robert actually made sense, since one of the first films he made was a short film adaptation of The Telltale Heart back in 2008, which, A, sported the same cinematographer and editor as The Witch, The Lighthouse, and The Northman, but I tried to find this online and I could not. Have either one of y'all seen this adaptation? I have mm-hmm. not. That feels like one of those things that's going to like slide quietly into the Criterion channel at some point, but yeah, I hasn't right? not yeah. crossed my radar. Yeah, I was very much on Vimeo, like, okay, like, <laughs> Robert Telltale Heart, like, nope, no, nothing was coming up, so. Either that or he doesn't love it and hasn't released it. Like, I know some people are very private about early works and or student films, so it's possible that he's like, yeah, this was a work in progress, but my features speak for themselves. Well, um, he actually has similar thoughts about this and The Witch, because I read an interview way back, well, back, well, sorry, now, but way back in March when uh, The Northman was coming out with the AV Club, and he talked about how he cannot even watch The Witch anymore because it just is the work of a lesser filmmaker, and how he didn't get to do everything he wanted to do in The Lighthouse because of certain studio mandates, and it's like, wow, like, but look at your final products, though. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sounds like someone's a little hard on themselves. A little bit. So adapting the short story proved troublesome, which halted Max's progress on the script, um, then under the tentative working title, Burnt Island. Robert mused his own ideas to bolster the project's conceptualization at that point, and with his brother's support, soon began investigating for the source material. So one story that caught his attention in his initial research was a 19th century myth of an incident at Small's Lighthouse in Wales, wherein one of two lighthouse keepers, both named Thomas, dies while trapped at their outpost by a destructive storm. Hmm. The fact that they were both called Thomas compelled Robert Eggers to create a film with an underlying story of identity. And um, unfortunately, by the time he realized that he wanted to do this, uh, they, he actually found a buyer to finance the witch. So this film was put on hold while that was going through. Then we're all the better for it. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So after The Witch finished its theatrical rollout in 2016, its unexpected success elevated Robert's directing profile. So I'm sorry, did you actually just use the word elevate? Okay. <laughs> yes, I did. But I, it, <laughs> the movie wasn't elevated. His career was elevated. Okay, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. His career profile, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> so to, to exploit this credibility, he pushed The Lighthouse, one of several projects, in his negotiations with studio executives. So he and Max then resumed their work by exchanging drafts of the revised screenplay accordingly. This coincided with the more rigorous research of the period to develop the on-screen world. So Robert immersed himself in photos of 1890s New England, 1930s maritime-themed French films, and symbolist art for visual reference. The Eggers' study of literature with maritime and surrealist themes informed the lighthouse's character's speech, which is not unlike the, the journals he referenced for his character's dialogue in The Witch. You know, the one that people love to complain how they can't understand anything the characters say. Oh, yeah. gosh, yeah. I, I don't know. Get with it, folks. <laughs> like, that was one of my favorite things about that movie. Uh, I find Eggers' attention to historical detail yep. and, like, uh, linguistic nuance. Yes. Like, uh, I want to hang out with them. I mean, like, on the one hand, that's probably a bad thing because he's, like, super into, like, isolation and repressed feelings, it seems, mm. maybe. Or maybe he's totally different in, like, person. But um, <laughs> but his historical nuance is a very relatable uh thread that i'm i'm like all about that's that's one thing i can always say about his work mm -hmm. which i hope extends to the northlander as well is how incredibly deep and murky and beautiful um and specific his historical interests are mm -hmm. I, I agree with you and when it comes to again not understanding what people say and i i watched this with subtitles because i was like okay i i, I love the witch but it's it's always kind of a thing where it's like with Shakespeare, you know, it's, I don't always know when I'm watching Shakespeare exactly what the characters are saying, because that's just my ears don't work that way. But that's why you have the actors acting certain ways to pick up context clues for what they are saying. So it's just like, ah, come on, people. Yeah, I will say, so I saw this movie at TIFF in its debut, so I think I was one of the first audiences to see it, mm -hmm. and there was definitely people who said, I did have some difficulty hearing all of the kind of nuance in the dialogue, right? Like, they were catching the big gist, but they wanted to hear the specific wordplay, because like Kat said, it's so intricate and specific and detailed. But I feel like that's actually a bit of a testament as opposed to a detriment where people said, these performances are so good, I want to be able to read along to see how Pattinson and Defoe have interpreted them to appreciate that even more. Well, so when it comes to the writings that influenced them, so yes, they looked into the writings of Herman Melville, Robert Louis Stevenson, H.P. Lovecraft, as we've said, uh, among others, but then they came across the literature from Sarah Orne Jewett, a novelist best known for her local color work set around the coast of Maine. It was 
Her dialect-heavy writing style that provided the lead character's cadences rooted in the experiences of her own sailor characters and real-life farmers, fishermen, and captains that she had interviewed. Huh. Robert and Max also deferred to a dissertation on Jewett's technique to guide their direction for intense conversational scenes. And then their theater background was another foreshaping that creative direction. Yeah, now, is this the time to talk about Sarah Orne Jewett? By all means. Okay, Uh, let's say that... Thus so far, because we haven't dug into, like, the content of the movie yet, Mm -hmm. Jewett is one of the first, like, little queer markers in this story because Mm. she is so much a lesbian. She was in a Boston (laughs) marriage in Boston. Oh, wow. Um, So she's she's a queer woman doing this really fascinating uh, dialect work. And it's so refreshing to have dialect work in American literature that's not extremely racist. So Mm. (laughs) good on you, Sarah. What a novelty. (laughs) And uh, I haven't read her work. I had heard of her before, like, looking into the lighthouse and then being like, wait, I know that name. Why do I know that name? Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, uh, literary lesbian from the early 20th century. That's right. That's yeah. my scene. Okay. And uh, I tracked down the specific dissertation that they were talking about. It's a 1976 dissertation by Dr. Evelyn Starr Cutler, who uh, was seemingly... Uh, a cool feminist of some kind. She, I, I read her obituary and she volunteered for now back in the 1970s. Oh, wow. Hmm. So, you know, cool ladies abound. There, there we, we go. go. Well, um, so there were versions of the script that were a bit too clear and Eggers' goal was to make the audience go mad and become confused like Winslow. So the final script turned out to be much more confusing for the audience. Um, when it comes to casting, both Defoe and Pattinson separately approached Eggers to express their enthusiasm for the witch and their desire to collaborate. Eggers' initial film proposals with Defoe were not particularly successful, because when they met in person to discuss The Lighthouse, Eggers was plain-spoken in conversation, and Defoe recalled that there was no discussion, with Eggers telling him, this is the way we're going to do this, my way or the highway, which to Defoe was very unusual for a director to not ask for, like, I guess, more feedback from his actors. Hmm, okay. Um, To prepare for their respective roles, each actor employed different techniques at the rehearsals. Defoe was spontaneous in his performance, citing his theater background with the experimental troupe The Wooster Group, whereas Pattinson planned his rehearsing from the discussion of the script. And similarly, Pattinson would stay in a hotel that was near the site, whereas uh, uh, Defoe would sleep with the crew. I mean, not not sleep with the crew, but like, you know, in the vicinity. (laughs) Among the crew. Yes, among the crew. Who can say? (laughs) It's certainly not for us to say. No. We don't know what Defoe's getting up to. (laughs) Well, a lot of things in this movie. Oh my gosh, yeah. Principal photography began on April 9th, 2018 in Canada, lasting 34 days. And this is at Cape Fortune, a fishing village in southern Nova Scotia. Joe, have you been there? Uh, I've not been to this specific location, but I have been to Nova Scotia, yes. Oh, okay. (laughs) Because the filmmakers found no lighthouse suitable for the needs of the production, they constructed a 70-foot lighthouse set for their base of operations. Um, Filming did become difficult uh, because a combination of the remote location, complex logistics, and harsh climate. And the harsh climate includes freezing temperatures, Mm -hmm. cold Atlantic water, Intense winds, snow, rain, no protective flora on the fortune terrain, which kept them exposed to the elements throughout the film. Three nor'easter cyclones blew across the Cape during various stages of production. Um, So because of this, much of the film uses real weather elements during during the filming. 
which I will say I find kind of refreshing because I know a lot of productions do shoot in Canada, but they often shoot in Vancouver and Toronto and sometimes Montreal. And we do get, you know, more inclement weather in those cities, but it's... I'm not going to say that there's a lack of authenticity when things like snow are depicted, but like if you're watching Hallmark movies and you see snow, that shit is fake because they're being filmed in July. So I, I did appreciate that this looks slightly miserable because I actually bought into what was happening as a result. You can tell the commitment to the experience is there. They yeah. had uh, a lot of very seasoned uh, crew members who were all would be on things you'd think, surely they've seen worse than this. And they were all agreeing, (laughs) this is the worst one. Oof. But the thing is, it was bad, but it wasn't a disaster. You know, there are so many films that that endure, like, actual calamities and so forth under conditions like this, and this one Mm -hmm. didn't. They built the lighthouse. It did not once topple over. It could have. (laughs) And I think that everybody making this movie realized what it was about, that it was meant to be so evocative of misery and discomfort and enduring the elements that everyone Mm -hmm. sort of agreed that they should do it and as much as it made tensions flare during the production in the end they were all there for it and 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 knew that it was better because of it which i think is why it's so distinct it's it's a real movie as in like it is not a product it is a piece of art where everybody got in the dirt and made the art Mm -hmm. right I, although I will say, I mean, because I think we can get into discussions too of like, you know, art house cinema and how accessible this is for mainstream audiences. Um, this being my first time watch, I was actually pleasantly surprised to find to find how accessible I found the movie and mm-hmm. how entertaining I found this movie to be. Because I definitely walked in with some preconceived notions about the type of film I was going to see. And while I got aspects of that, I was also pleasantly surprised in a lot of other ways. Yeah, I think that this is a really careful balance between, all right, there's surface level readings where you can just appreciate what's going on. And yeah, there's a couple of sort of dicey, abstract, surreal moments. But overall, it's like, okay, they're going mad. And then stuff happens, and they both kind of die. And (laughs) then there's all the deeper stuff. And then it's all enriched by beautiful cinematography and these performances. Like, to me, this is almost a best case scenario for art house fair where you can more easily see a crossover into the mainstream because there is so much to get out of this. Right, right. Well, let's go into some of these technical aspects. So I'm going to do my best to make this as wet as possible, not very dry. Ew, don't spit in the mic though, please. Okay. (laughs) So from the beginning, Eggers wanted to shoot this film in black and white and a narrow vintage aspect ratio. Thus, it was shot on black and white 35mm film with an orthochromatic aesthetic using a custom-made cyan filter that evokes 19th century photography. My god, a custom-made filter. Get out of town. Well, so this is the thing. This filter blocks all the red wavelengths from hitting the film so that all reds appear black. Considering most pores and skin tones have red in them, the orthochromatic emulation allows the audience to see just about every imperfection and pore on the actors' faces. Ah, that's why Defoe looks so craggy in this yep. movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. They also employed a nearly square 1.19 to 1 aspect ratio that corresponds to narrow sets and seeks to withhold information from the audience. It also definitely gives it a very claustrophobic vibe. Mm. I can't tell you how much all this stuff i'm just i eat it up i love this i want oh i want them to play with light you know i I want them to go hard on these archaic aesthetics for for metaphorical purposes and aesthetic purposes this is 
this is filmmaker shit here. Yes. Right? Like, it's playing with the big boy pants on. It's not just like, <laughs> oh, we picked up a camera, you know, we we phoned up James Cameron, asked for the latest, you know, high-tech wonder, shot it to make it look period-specific, and then, like, sent it off to production to have them do all the work. Like, they clearly planned this from the origin step to be sure that they were trying to do as good a job as they could. And it's unpretentious. Like, that's the best thing about it is that, like, you know, you could list off all that and, and so I could see somebody roll their eyes and be like, oh, gosh, well, I already I fell asleep and I don't I don't care about that at all. But right. like, but then you look at the work and you're like, no, that was a good idea. That was a good goddamn idea. Mm. <laughs> well, and I think because production lasts in 34 days, that's about as long as the, the time period for this film takes. So it actually like, <laughs> e- even though we don't have time markers and we're not seeing like week one, week two, week three, like we are seeing their physical degradation in real time as this film goes on. Yeah. Mm. But. Also, this stock black and white film, by the way, it required much more light to get exposure. So when they shot at night and indoors, they had to use about 15 to 20 times more light on set to actually see something on film. So the crew put flickering 500 to 800 watt halogen bulbs in period correct kerosene lamps that were only a few feet away from the actors' faces, resulting in the set being blindingly bright and the actors barely seeing each other, with the crew often having to wear sunglasses during filming. (laughs) Now I want to see set photos. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then we, uh, um, uh, before I move on to my next little piece, I want to point out that the cinematographer Jaron Blaschke, uh, who had previously collaborated with Egris on The Witch, would go on to get the film's sole Oscar nomination for his camera work. And didn't win. He did not win, no. <laughs> no. Um, I'm going to bring in my one article for production here, though. So this is from um, Why the Lighthouse is Actually a Queer Romance by Patrick K. Oyle for Collider. And... I'm just going to drop this in as a nugget for when we go back into our queer discussion later, because, um, sorry, everyone, in case you didn't pick up on this, this movie is very queer. <laughs> so fucking queer. Cat's already cued us to at least one reference, and it ain't gonna stop there. <laughs> so, K.O.L. actually says, and I didn't even think about this, and I'm interested to see if y'all agree, but he says, while Eggers's choice of black and white cinematography and the smaller aspect ratio was intended to evoke the photography of the film's late 19th century setting, the film's square look also evokes the shape of many 1950s sitcoms like I Love Lucy. The film not only looks the part of a sitcom, but the story also sets up Winslow and Wake's relationship as a husband and wife making a living in a lighthouse. One can imagine how, if Eggers had swapped out the ominous soundtrack for more wacky sound bites and a laugh track, the lighthouse could have made for an interesting domestic comedy about two lighthouse keepers. Yeah. I mean, the comedy the comedy is there. Fart jokes and all. Oh, for sure. So. <laughs> I'm sure. Yes, the the farting was uh, pleasant. I'm not gonna say pleasant. It was a surprise for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's unexpected. I, I went to YouTube and I googled. I was like the lighthouse as a rom com, and someone 100 percent cut a trailer to this movie with that up. So uh, it, it does work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not quite as well as Showgirls, but yes, exactly. <laughs> or Mrs. Doubtfire was as a, as a horror movie, right? And Mary Poppins. Yeah. Yes, Mary Poppins. <laughs> So, The Lighthouse has its world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in the Director's Fortnite section on May 19th, 2019. And it also screened, as Joe said, at TIFF and the Atlantic Film Festival in September of that same year. It was distributed by A24 in North America and Focus Features Internationally, being released on October 18th, 2019. 
In its limited opening weekend, uh, the film grossed $419,000 from eight theaters for an average of $52,000 per venue, which is really, really good. I feel like I, whenever it's above 40, that's always what people are like taking notice. Yeah. In its second weekend, it expanded to 586 theaters and then to 978 theaters in its third weekend, which would wind up being its widest release. Uh, it would continue to lose theaters in the following weeks, but it wound up grossing $10.9 domestically and $7.5 in other territories for a worldwide gross of $18.3 million against a supposed budget of $11 million. And I say uh, supposed because I could only find the budget on Wikipedia. So, right. Yeah. Critically, this movie is beloved. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, we've got a rating of 90% with an average rating of 8 out of 10. On Metacritic, it's got an 83 out of 100 and a letterbox score of 8 out of 10. So again, even audiences did like this movie, which again, I'm always surprised by because that reaction to The Witch was um, like night and day for critics and audiences. Yeah, I wonder if it's just because people already knew what to expect having seen The Witch and seeing that division between critics and audiences. So everybody just went in kind of on the same page with this one. Well, I think the, also the big thing is, though, the marketing for The Lighthouse isn't promising one of the scariest films you'll ever see. Oh, my God. Yeah, folks, if you want to hear us wax poetic about A24's marketing tactics, go back and watch our Horror Queers Hangouts on YouTube from March when we talk about A24 horror, because yeah. sometimes they shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah. But um, but yeah, th that's really all I have for production. So why don't we dive into this film? Let's let's, let's go. All right. So we begin as two strangers arrive by ferry to an island to look after the lighthouse. Mm. Amidst a persistent foghorn, the men settle in. And folks, I'm going to do this the way the film plays it. So we don't learn their names until certain points. So I'm not going to reveal those character names until then. So the younger one, who is played by Robert Pattinson, finds a ceramic mermaid in his pillow. Well, the other one farts a bunch. This, uh, the ceramic mermaid, by the way, is also called a scrimshaw, which is a carving done in bone or ivory that is typically made by whalers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that period aesthetic is already there, right? Yeah. So the older one is played by Willem Dafoe. So uh, we have a dinner scene, and the older man toasts to a successful four-week run. So that's how long the pair of them are going to be here. And unfortunately, this is when we learn the younger one doesn't drink. And we start in with myth and superstition. It's bad luck not to finish a toast, so he has to get water, but it's polluted because the cistern hasn't been looked after. But we get there in the end. Th th this movie also does a really good job of making you feel disgusting. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> all right so we have the hierarchy immediately established the younger man is told to tackle most of the duties which are both extremely physical but also domestic also literal right duties. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> well they're referred to as duties and then he also has to look after duty in this yes system. no i i got i got i got the joke <laughs> I just think it's important because it's not like I chose duties at random. Oh, it was intentional on your part. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. So the older man, by contrast, will tend to the light and look after the log books. And it's important to note that the light from the lighthouse is often referred to using female pronouns and are off limits to the younger man. But that's common with like sailors and stuff right because aren't all boats any vehicle of any kind is always referred to yeah, literally anything that isn't another sailor and sometimes also another sailor mm -hmm. is you know feminized uh for the sake of 
just how horny being alone in the ocean makes you. Mm-hmm. How horny and thirsty for alcohol it makes you. Well, yeah. yeah. When you're in the doldrums, that is. Mm-hmm. Ooh, mm-hmm. The evil doldrums, yes. <laughs> well, I, I say it's important, yes, because this is true to a lot of things. Um, but I think it's also playing an important part in this film where gender could be said to be a little bit fluid because both of these men will assume feminized positions at various points and they will also try to assert their masculinity at various points. Which the attraction to masculinity is definitely a theme that has been discussed ad nauseum with this film uh, in the interest of um, androeroticism, which I actually did not know. Um, I, did not, I was not familiar with the term before researching this film. Yeah, Kat, had you heard this? Because it was new to me as well. Uh, the, the term androeroticism? Mm-hmm. Uh, no. Yeah, no. Not, no. No. I knew androgynous, but I mean, and listeners, just for, here's our little brief lesson for this, but like basically where homosexuality is like, is an identifying label for people who are attracted to the same gender and heterosexuality is for people who are attracted to the opposite gender. Androsexuality is a less restrictive term that people can use. Uh, Someone who identifies as androsexual may find themselves attracted to masculinity or the roles of the gender and what is perceived to be masculine rather than specific genders or sexual orientations. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. I will say, unfortunately, one of the things that I kind of found was that it also seems to be used as a bit of a, ooh, but we don't want to say gay, we don't want to say homosexual, so we're saying androsexual. Yes. Eggers is ambiguous about whether or not the characters are gay, and his, his exact quote is, am I saying these characters are gay? No. I'm not saying they're not, either. Forget about complexities of human sexuality or their particular inclinations. I'm more about questions than answers in this movie. Whereas you have Robert Pattinson that's like, well, I think Tom, uh, I'm sorry, I, th- I think Winslow just wants a daddy. So, <laughs> make of that what you will. I will say, folks, if you have never read Robert Pattinson's interviews, he is an absolute shit disturber, and he doesn't (laughs) seem to follow PR advice, and it's delightful because he is super fucking candid, speaks his mind, uh, yeah, he's, he's just a delight, and if you have ever held off watching one of his movies because of his performance in Twilight, rectify that immediately. (laughs) I mean, watch The Lighthouse and realize, oh... I right. really shouldn't judge somebody by what they did when they were a young person or even the fact that they're an actor and they can do whatever they want. Wh- whatever they... The, yeah, the fact that both he and Chris and Stewart are still having to prove themselves to people, well, mm-hmm. A, it, it shows that people haven't actually watched a lot of their movies because right. both of them are taking on very challenging, challenging roles. Yes. It just sucks that when one of them does something main... Well, I'm sorry, Pattinson does the Batman, he's fine, but, you know, Chris and Stewart goes and does Charlie's Angels for fun and, like, you know, that tanks, so mm-hmm. that sucks. Yeah, I liken it to Natalie Portman and Ewan McGregor in Mm. that first Star Wars prequel. A lot of this has to do with direction and script and the way that it all comes together in the edit, but like really talented performers can be diluted or flattened in their performances in the same way that sometimes it's just not a good fit for them. So yeah, I mean, I say this as a bit of a hypocrite because I have absolutely written off actors I don't like, but I usually try to give them multiple opportunities to prove me wrong. No. Um, I do want to add on one more tiny bit from Eggers about this, uh, the gay stuff, but he basically, like, in an interview with the AV Club, he said, nothing good happens when two men are trapped in a giant phallus, to which I reply, you know, insert Shorjan gif here. <laughs> Some would beg to differ, yes. <laughs> but again, I don't think it was intentional on his part, but it reads like a, okay, so like, 
it just feels like sometimes he's like, I've been told not to say gay. Like, I have been told to not talk about this movie that way by my financiers. And I only even go on to that further because there was apparently a scene um, where there was going to be a juvenile shot of a lighthouse moving like an erect penis and then a match cut to Pattinson's actual erect penis. And <sighs> this cut what? was... Re- it was removed upon request by the financiers who were worried about how it would affect the film's rating by the MPAA. And yeah. my thing with this is this. So I don't think this was actually shot. I don't think it ever made it into the film, period. But I'm like, right. well, why not shoot it and submit it? And then if it does cause a problem, then you can cut it. This seems like the financiers are like, no, you can't even do this. This is going to cause problems. Which, again, that's feeding into my whole, like, well, is this why? I, I know he's saying I don't want to give answers. I'm trying to be ambiguous. But is this also why we're not really saying gay here? I don't know. Well, there's there's a couple layers to this. Um, uh, and it goes beyond just, like, Eggers being dodgy about, like, making specifics regarding queerness in this film. Mm-hmm. But he just wants to dodge specifics in general. There's a, a quote from an interview he did with Slate where he says... Some movies you want to know everything, and it's very clear. This isn't that kind of movie. I've read some incredibly well-done dissections of Lynch's Lost Highway. Mm-hmm. I don't want to read that. I don't want to know all the answers. I like having to wonder. That's what's fun about a movie like this. Mm-hmm. Even with a movie like Mary Poppins that tells you what to think, it's still fun to wonder what her and Bert's relationship is all about. Mm. <laughs> Which I think is a, a weirdly, intensely telling little little blurb where, like, I think he knows... That he made something, I mean, like, Willem Dafoe's character, in many cases, is virtually looking out at the audience mm-hmm. and and gaslighting Robert Pattinson's character yes. and saying a bunch of things that the audience could assume about how they're meant to interpret the film, right? Mm-hmm. which really kind of exposes the film in some regards as a dialogue about that kind of cinematic obscurity. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that this is uncommon. There's a lot of filmmakers who are reticent to over-explain their works because they feel like, well, the art should speak for itself. So in that way, I can't hold that against Eggers because he very much seems like that kind of guy. And Kat, your, your quote sort of directly references that because people often do that with Lynch, right? Intensely, yeah. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if Eggers is like, oh my God, could I also be in the same category as Lynch? Because what great company to be in. <laughs> now, with regard to the financing, I'm not going to play devil's advocate, Trace, because I I agree with you. It seems like, well, why not try it? You might just like it. The MPAA might like it. I think the reality is is that if you shoot an erect penis, as we know from... Possessor. Possessor. Um, even just the, the documentary, this film is not oh. yet rated. Like, <laughs> no, I'm just thinking, like, if, if you shoot something like that and then you submit it, if they flag it, they may also then start to flag other things that they may mm. have given a pass to. So it's possible they just didn't want to antagonize them. And the reality is, is like, we're only just getting to a point now in 2022 where it's like, oh, dicks are becoming a regular thing on screen again. You know what? It could be. You know what? Okay. Put put yourself in, in the mind, in the headspace of one of these MPA voters, right? So you make them watch The Lighthouse. Right. And they're like, hey, we, we can't have this scene. But then that means they also have to watch it again with the recut version. <laughs> <laughs> watch this giant erect dick, you fucking members of the MPA. Like you're, make, like, you're making me, it's like, well, no, technically you're making yourself watch this again. You could just give it a pass with the erect penis, but sure, like, like take it out on the director for making you watch this movie again. <laughs> Here's the thing. I think Eggers is really smart. Because here's a director, an American director, who knows that 
he's making art films within the studio system, which right. is an extremely dangerous game. Mm-hmm. He's not like somebody like Pedro Moldovar, who's over in Spain with like basically a blank check to do whatever he wants to do because he is Spain's filmmaker. Right. You don't get that liberty over here and in any regard. No one like if your film doesn't get funded by like some angel investor or studio, you're you're screwed. Right. So I think there's a lot of really tactful decisions for the sake of continuing to make challenging, artful films, knowing and and having the legacy of so many people who've crashed and burned when they got like, you know, a, a, a blank check to do whatever they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the escalation of which to lighthouse to um, Viking picture, um, <laughs> uh, it's it's pretty clear that this is. This has been smart plays, top to bottom. And, uh, you know, I mean, I would love to see more erect penises in film. I think we're we're getting there. And I think, you know, and I think Eggers wants to do it, too. But he he has to, for his own sake and maybe the sake of all of us, he has to build his clout in order to be able to flex like that to destroy the stupid fucking puritanical system. And he loves Puritans, so he knows. Well, interestingly enough, spoiler alert, having, I think I'm the only one in this virtual room that's seen the Northman, and trust me, we will have said things about it on that Patreon episode, Trace, but he wanted to show Dick in that movie, and it was digitally erased from the finale as well, so Eggers <laughs> still not showing Dick on screen. Oh my god, but not for lack of trying on his part. It's true, yeah. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. So at this dinner, the older man demands gab and chatter because boredom makes men villains and the only medicine is drink. That's a, a sort of paraphrased version of or a dialed back version of what Defoe is giving us. And this dialogue just sings. It's like a five course meal on your palate. It's so good. He has some soliloquies in this movie that I'm just like... I could just watch this for hours. <laughs> yeah, I think this. we're all probably in agreement that it is a huge surprise that at least Defoe didn't get nominated for this. But honestly, I was also throwing my hat in the ring for Pattinson because I think these yeah. two performances are just outstanding. Mm-hmm. Let's just say that a certain award show like had any kind of credibility. Let's say that. <laughs> if, if that was true, this movie would have swept, yeah, at least right? for nominations. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Okay, so we also learned that the last lighthouse keeper went mad, or at least this is according to the Defoe character. This individual apparently started believing in merfolk and ranting about something in the light. And if you believe in foreshadowing, this is the moment. (laughs) Well, and this is our introduction of like the kind of like Greek mythology Prometheus death that will play a much larger part as the film goes on. Mm-hmm. And that that interweaving between that like that kind of myth and then the sort of superstition that accompanies sailors. So we also learned that it is bad luck to kill a seabird. Mm-hmm. Which <laughs> uh, Chekhov's uh, seabird, but oh my god. One of my favorite scenes in this film is involving that bird. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, Trace, maybe now you finally understand why for the best animal category in our first year of the yes. Hereditaries, I put the seagull in there. Because this character is a fucking character. This needs to be a double feature with The Shallows, which also features Mr. Steven Seagull. Mm-hmm. Uh, in- <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, we've, we've mentioned the actors' names. But we haven't mentioned the actors of the seagulls, which are, of course, Lady Tramp and John. Uh, Aww. Uh, give me life. <laughs> um, 
I cannot imagine how difficult it would be to train a seagull, by the way. Apparently, they're extremely intelligent. Oh, I can believe it. I was going to say, compared to the spiders in arachnophobia, Joe. There we go. Yeah. On the on the, the social hierarchy of trainable <laughs> animals, birds are probably easier than spiders. And also cats, I imagine. Yes. Okay. So, following the return of this pesky seagull. So, you know, I, I skipped over some parts where we basically see Pattinson's character doing chores. So he has to get yeah. coal. He, at one point, has to uh, repair the shingles so that he doesn't see Willem Dafoe's character dry humping the bed anymore. Uh, he has to lug giant drums of oil all the way up the stairs, but he is never admitted to the top part of the lighthouse. The interesting thing to me with this, though, I mean, so he is doing the he's he's doing more of the physical labor Mm-hmm. Than, than the older gentleman is. But it's a thing where it's like, if we're going into this whole like theme of domesticity and he's doing the wifely duties, really it's Defoe's character who is doing, because he's the one that's cooking. He's the one that's doing the less physically laborious, intense, light mm-hmm. work. Whereas we have Pattinson's character that's doing more of the quote-unquote man roles of, uh, of, the, of the house. Yeah, I think it's because in this case, people are interpreting gender or they're affixing gender onto who has control, which is a very gendered way of looking at it. So certainly is. They're giving Defoe the masculine pronoun or the masculine presence in this relationship because he is the one ordering Pattinson around and denying him entry to a private space that is his and his alone. Well, there there is some BDSM stuff. I mean, obviously oh, later when we get uh-huh. to the dog leash part, but like, <laughs> but but yeah. The, there's very much a sub-dom relationship here. Yes. I'm, I'm so glad that we educated people on pup play earlier so that <laughs> we could bring it back here. <laughs> I have thoughts about that, but oh, we'll get we there. Will, okay. We will get to them. We will get there. <laughs> okay, so yeah, we, we get the return of this pesky gull at one point, and I, I love that we're setting it up as uh, almost a nemesis, right? Every time we see this seagull, Pattinson's character just gets so fucking upset. But then we do see him masturbating to this mermaid statue in mm-hmm. a closet. And some people, of course, have said, like, oh, who's in the closet? In a closet! <laughs> and then when he goes outside, he actually sees the older man kind of basking in the lighthouse light. And it looks like he's naked because when he comes out uh, to the, the sort of top walkway, he's actually adjusting and putting on clothes. So there's, there's two different kinds of sexualities at play here do y'all want to try to answer what the fuck he's doing up there at the lighthouse or do we want to leave that ambiguous as egris probably intends i mean i think it is entirely intentionally ambiguous Mm -hmm. all those all those sequences where pattinson's character witnesses him up there Mm -hmm. there's always a bit called into question if he's even actually seen that at all if it's if it's a dream if it's a just kind of like some kind of weird momentary illusion that happens. Like, mm-hmm. did he see him naked up there? We saw him as an audience, but we also see lots of things because we're seeing it yes. through Pattinson's eyes. And he is... Yes, he is an unreliable narrator. Very. But everyone's an unreliable narrator. This is true. <laughs> and that's, I think for me, because I can see how that can be frustrating for some viewers. But for me, when I'm like, when I'm walking into this, I'm like, okay, we're not supposed to have answers here. It's easier for me to go along with the ride and just absorb the film I'm watching as opposed to trying to like pick apart every scene and be like, okay, well, what's real here? What's not real? What's going on? What's really happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I've seen some people read this as uh, the Defoe character is, you know, 
an older mirror or a, a later psycho version of the Pattinson character, and therefore he's not even real. Like, this is Pattinson imagining all of these interactions with sure. a different version of himself. And I'm like, that is interesting. I had never thought of it. Also, no. I don't. Like, I don't want to go there because yeah. I think that actually makes the movie sort of less interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't that, I don't buy it. I mean, hey, all these interpretations, the fact that everyone wants to pick this apart, mm-hmm. it's it's all playing into Eggers' cleverly assembled plot. Sure. But um, <laughs> I think in that undulating glowing light, Defoe's character has witnessed this kind of spectral call a beacon of his own going out into the vortex of darkness. And what's been brought back is some kind of cephalopodic being from beyond space. The light achieves form, and that form wills him to bear his nakedness unto it so that he can absorb all of its luminescent glow and channel through his body, make his offerings, his sacred offerings of his own sea slime to his master cephalopod in space. Whoa. Dad, tell me you did not just come up with that. Like, please at least tell me you you thought that out and wrote it down beforehand. That was entirely ad-libbed. Whoa! Get out of here. (laughs) Shit, that's awesome. (laughs) It's like you're talented or something. I don't get it. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. Yeah, and obviously I can't top that, so I'm just going to keep going. Just because <laughs> fuck me. Okay. Um. So the next morning they do bicker about these domestic duties. So Defoe's character takes Pattinson's character to task for not sweeping the floor well enough, and then he goes on an absolute teardown rant that basically ends with "You're going to like doing this work because I says you will," and if he contradicts him again, he's going to dock his wages. Well, he better make the 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 ends of the nails sparkle like the like a sperm whale's pecker. <laughs> the colorful language. Very, fun fact, very fun. The Loch Ness Monster is a sperm whale's pecker. Really? There you go. <laughs> hmm. So the next day, the younger man is injured in a fall when he's painting the lighthouse exterior. And this is like their meet cute, by the way. When he's like, it's, it's like mm-hmm. in a rom com when, like, oh, like the couples are bickering a bit, but like they're kind of like teasing each other. He's like, oops, <laughs> dropped ya. And a little bit of a physical pratfall, of course, yeah. <laughs> and this is when the seagull really starts to get their hunches into this because it just hops up onto Pattinson's leg and starts biting and tearing at his pants. It's an aggressive seagull. Indeed, indeed. So we learn at this point that this is the halfway point of the four weeks that they will spend together on the island. Time is nebulous. We don't, as you said earlier, Trace, we don't get uh, day counts. We don't get week counts. So this has felt like a bit of a blur, but it Mm -hmm. has felt, okay, you know, we're actively moving through time at a reasonable kind of sequential pace. And at this point in the film, we finally get a character name. So... So Pattinson's character introduces himself as Ephraim Winslow, and then we also get a bit of a backstory for both of them. So Winslow used to work in timber in Canada, and then he kind of moved around a lot. He was looking for something that fit him, but also he is eager to make money, which is why he got into this lighthouse business. And then uh, Defoe's character, who remains unnamed for now, indicates that he has always worked in the sea. Well, uh, we at least have Pattinson's character, Mr. Winslow, going from being surrounded by a bunch of wood to a bunch of semen. 
Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Bing. I can't take credit for that. I saw that in an interview. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, so this is also where we get a little bit of elaboration on the myth related to killing seabirds. And we learned that apparently seagulls contain the souls of dead sailors. Yes. And at this point, we ha- the, the seagull that we have seen, we, we are aware that it's a one eyed seagull, right? I have not said it, but yes, it is. Okay, just wanted to make. I, I mean, I just couldn't remember if we had like been made aware that it's one-eyed. Yeah, like it, it's it's very evident, uh, particularly in spoiler alert, the scene where it dies. But I think when Winslow comes back with the wheelbarrow full of coal and it's kind of standing at the entrance to the lodging, you can see that it only has one eye there too. Mm. So despite the fact that they seem to be warming up to one another a little bit more, their roles don't change at all. So they they continue to kind of divvy up the workload as is. One night, Winslow can't sleep. This is when he climbs up to the lighthouse to kind of see what's going on. And he hears moaning and some weird kind of muttering. And also we see some jism dropping down. And yeah, then we, we do, do see a fleeting <laughs> tentacle. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's how you know. That's how you know the film is in a very particular place uh, that that's quite privileged, actually, in American cinema. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, on screen come. Yes. Right. Like, it, it doesn't happen often. I, I, I feel like we're starting to see more of it because uh, uh, David Lowery's The Green Knight last year. We get, you know, Alicia Vikander's Handful of Come. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's just interesting that we're starting to see more of this, uh, and also done in like very, very serious films, you know, whereas what, right. 25 years ago, it's the butt of a joke and there's something about Mary. Yeah, that and like a humiliating incident in Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm, hmm hmm Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that Come is now actually being associated with sex, right? Like, oh, this is a, a natural byproduct as opposed to a punchline. What a novel concept. Yeah, right? <laughs> I will say, I I think you could also misinterpret this as just like ooze because we see a tentacle. So it could be semen or it could be like whatever kind of juices are falling off of that thing. But it's come. <laughs> Just so you know, Joe, um, nothing actually gets excreted from a tentacle, uh, like an octopus <laughs> or anything. Uh, they they ink, but it doesn't come out of their tentacles. <laughs> hey, we don't know what kind of creature this is. We you don't know, know if it's a squid or an fair. octopus. <laughs> that is fair. It is Lovecraftian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like desperately trying to validate my own point. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, there's there's all kinds of room for it to be some kind of strange oceanic ooze. Mm-hmm. Especially... If Pattinson's actually there, like, witnessing this, mm-hmm. then it's come. Right. If it's a dream, then it's ooze. There you there go. go. <laughs> Oceanic ooze. God. Uh, okay. So the day before Winslow is meant to ship out, so we're at, we're at the end of the four-week period, this is when he ends up beating the seagull to death. <sighs> so... He does see a dead one bleeding into the cistern. Yeah, so it's it's infecting or polluting their water supply. But then this fucking shady seagull just gets down there and starts... I mean, it kind of signs its own death warrant by flying straight at his face. But he also didn't have to beat it to death quite so violently. This is like a 30 second scene of him beating the fuck out of the seagull. And it is awesome. So I will say... 
at the festival crowd, um, you know, this was like the North American premiere of the film, the audience kind of turned against the character in this moment. Like, they were very upset to see what he does to the seagull because it's over the top. Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't say it's it's not gratuitous. It, the beating of the seagull is not surprisingly the physical manifestation of all of his rage and frustration mm-hmm. that for some reason he ch- chooses to bottle up. Yes. I get, you know, he wants... He wants his pay. He wants his time on this island to be worthwhile. And so he's enduring quite a lot of uh, beratement. Well, so I've got a, a supposed read of this. So this is actually, um, so it's Irene Nudd for Gaily Dreadful. And it's from her article, The Lighthouse, You Can't Hide from Your Gayness. Okay. And she goes, not only does this brutal beating serve as Howard's attempt to regain control of the isolation he is subjected to, but it is a prime example of the reaction that is often had towards homosexuality. He has been orienting his sexual drive toward the wooden mermaid, while also in the company of Wake's naked form. His confusion and frustration is at its peak, so by the time the one-eyed gull pesters him for the final time, Howard's intense rage mirrors the violent masturbation that aligns with common toxic male sexual expression. To put oh, holy it... shit. He's choking the chicken. Yeah, yes. 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 To put it simply, <laughs> when Howard beats the seagull, it's a metaphor for beating his meat. The metaphor extends further since the seagull has one eye, and Howard's vision of Wake's former assistant also has one eye. Based on this connection, Howard is engaging in gay sex with the man that worked on the island before him. This Not only will this solidify the curse that Wake warned Howard about, but it's important of the inevitable insanity that will befall him due to isolation and abundance of toxic masculinity. And this is me speaking now. I, maybe this is not intentional, but I do think that one-eyed seagull can also be linked to one-eyed snake or the one-eyed monster euphemisms for the penis. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and just because we haven't said it, and the quote does name drop them, so Howard oh. is the Pattinson character, Wake is the Defoe character. Sorry, I won't do that again, but sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine, it's fine. So the seagull death ends up having a very immediate and not great effect on the weather. So I do love Eggers's camera work here. We just immediately crane up to the top of the lighthouse. We focus in on this weather vane and it just goes directly to north and we see that the weather is shifting. So they board up the windows and they decide that we're going to do a big last hurrah, settle in for a lobster dinner. And this is also when Winslow finally consents to a drink. So we've got a couple of really big milestones here. We have enacted a curse we weren't supposed to. And Winslow, who has never been a drinker because it goes against company policy, is breaking the rule. But it's all because he's supposed to get off this island tomorrow. Well, spoiler alert. He's, that's not going to happen. No. But this is this is really when the thaw between the two men happens. So the, the social lubricant that is alcohol leads to singing and some more stories about how the Defoe character came to be and some of his backstory. And we also get the confession that his name is, yes, Thomas Wake. And in case you were keeping track, the second character names themselves at 46 minutes into this movie. <laughs> And again, we have an hour left, and this is like, oh yeah, the night before we're going home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this to me is like a, the point in the disaster film where the disaster actually strikes. It's like, we've done all of the character work and the build-up, and now we're going to see the special effects start to come in. That's a good comparison, yeah. 
And, and the score here, I mean, the, the whole score throughout the film, and I'll, I'll give credit to composer Mark Corvin, who, um, by the way, Joe, uh, got his start doing the score for Cube before moving on to things like mm. The Witch and um, Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. Uh mm-hmm. But the, this score is constantly just ominous, filled with these deep, deep, like, boom. It's like yes. Christopher Nolan in here. Yeah, I'm I'm going to say, oh, maybe this is a Canadian influence then, because those films were all shot here in Canada. I believe it. So uh, the next day, Winslow wakes up and he is pretty badly hungover. They both are because they're laying on the floor and... <laughs> uh, in probably the the best moment of physical comedy in this entire movie, we see Winslow take the two chamber pods <sighs> out to the cliff and throw it into the wind so he is immediately doused with shit. It is I gagged. I kinda I I just laugh hysterically. <laughs> see, this is your rom com pratfalls, by the way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, someone's always got to get covered in some kind of human excrement, right? His his lover shit. He has his lover shit coating his face. <laughs> That's amore. Mm. The fact that he's like hungover when that happens, mm-hmm. it's just it's so miserable. I mean, that is I think probably the best explanation for why he does a bad job anyway because right. I mean, if you're really like if he had his wits about him, he would have known what a terrible that idea that was. Surely he's <laughs> emptied the chamber pots before, but no. No. Well, no, because it's the winds have changed direction, and he forgot that he cursed them by making those winds change. Oh, that too, oh that that's too. good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I do love that moment, though, where he just screams, like, fuck. Oh, yep. it's, uh-huh. it, it's so cathartic, even as a viewer, to watch him do that. <laughs> so this is also the moment where he discovers this mermaid on the rocks. So he sees a body, he goes to investigate. It is this mermaid that we had previously seen him wade into the water and see. And I love that the mermaids are kind of like sirens in this movie. So they seem to be luring men into the water to their deaths. And uh, we do get some female nudity here as he kind of uncovers her covered in this seaweed. And then she just starts shrieking at him and screaming at him. And it's really unnerving. And then it's basically, is this like kind of a dream sequence where we cut to him waking up? Or is that earlier? That was earlier. Okay, never mind. Ignore me. Yeah, so unlike last time, he doesn't wake up. So this isn't a dream, question mark, because he, he's still <laughs> awake. He rushes back to the lodging, and Thomas Wake, the Defoe character, does not give a shit about this because it's like, well, we got to get on with things. You're leaving today. <laughs> and then we see them waiting in this really bad storm, and the boat never shows. Nope. And uh, <laughs> Thomas has some uh, bad news <laughs> for Winslow <laughs> at this point. Well, so I would actually say this is the moment where the narrative truly shifts because time stops making sense at this point. Because the very next couple of scenes, we we see them sort of go back to their normal business, except there's a lot more drinking. So Winslow is Mm. now drinking on the job with every activity. But... At one point, he's he's doing coal work, and Wake comes in and informs him that the damp has gotten into the provisions, so they need to ration. And then he says, I've been telling this to you for two weeks. <laughs> and you're like, wait, isn't this the very next day? And Winslow seems as confused as we are. This is an amazing thing that happens with that character, where you start to... The audience immediately will start to question everything that's happening from here on out. Yes. Um, it's as though uh, Wake is looking at the audience and saying, the very act of you experiencing 
film editing means that you don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, wait, you, you thought that it, this was the, the day after? Well, you're as, you're as drunk and crazy as he is. What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very much putting us into the subject position that Winslow is in. And I, I remember I was so confused at this point. Like, wait, did I miss something? Was there a visual cue that told us time had passed? And then I suddenly realized, oh, is it that I can't trust Defoe's character, Thomas Wake, anymore? And the answer is yes. Like, it's uncertain what's happening with time, and maybe Winslow is drunk, but also I'm not sure whether or not Wake is telling the truth anymore either. Mm. Okay, so because the rations are dwindling and there's no clear time period in which the fairy may come back to collect them, they dig up a crate in the middle of the night, and this seems to consist a little bit of cans of food, but mostly booze. <laughs> all that gin mm-hmm. there's also a knife that Winslow covertly pockets that will become important later and this is where Wake recounts a story about gangrene on board and he ties that into how he's lost his leg but we have already previously heard a different story that seemed to contradict this so again is he just telling stories is he deliberately trying to confuse Winslow or is he just flat out lying about things Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so in the tiny bedroom that they share, we haven't really talked about this. You know, it, it's small, close quarters. It's two single beds on opposite sides of the wall, but like they're an arm's reach from each other. So their relationship is really souring at this point, and they get into a drunken mimicking contest. No, you. What? No, ye. <laughs> Uh, this is when he says, if I had a steak, I would fuck it. It is indeed, yeah. <laughs> and of course, uh, I think the most memed part of this film is when the Thomas Wake character finds out that Winslow does not like his cooking, and he complains, so you don't like me lobster. I mean, it's it's funny. This scene is hilarious. Oh, yeah. It, it, yeah. It, this little domestic dispute we have going on here, it's just, I did not expect to get something like this in this movie, and I'm so happy we have it. Mm-hmm. So this is also the moment that, in my eyes, is like, well, here is Willem Dafoe's Oscar submission for Best Actor. <laughs> he curses Winslow, uh, so he pleads to Neptune to curse him, and this speech, this monologue, is just chef's kiss perfect mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it is so rich with incredible language mm -hmm. uh let's see uh black waves teeming with salt foam to smother this young mouth with pungent slime like wow that's great um talking about uh screeching banshee like in the tempest and plunges right through your gullet Bursting ye, a bulging bladder no more, but a blasted <laughs> bloody film. Now and nothing for the harpies and souls of the dead sailors to peck and claw and feed upon, etc., etc. It's great. Just what? It's it's so fucking good. And I think this was the kind of thing where people said, oh, I really want to have the subtitles so I can see every little word choice. Because this has to go on for, what do you think, like a minute, two minutes? 
Yeah, it, it's a bit, but but then it ends with a joke. Like we we have this little button capper of Pattinson just going, "All right, I like your cooking." <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, I was also kind of lying. It's not that bad. Sorry, Daddy. Yeah, I'll be a basically. good boy. <laughs> I'm still your obedient boy. <laughs> so we see Winslow in bed that night, and we one of the other persistent sounds. So it's the the foghorn kind of droning sound that we hear when he's often, you know, shoveling coal in or lugging the the oil up the stairs is one sound. But then there's also the ticking of the clock. So as we hear that, we see that Winslow can't sleep. So he decides that he's going to pick the lighthouse lock with his stolen knife. So. He tries that and he can't get in. So then he tries to go into the desk, which contains the log book so he can see so that he can see what Wake has been writing about him. I thought we were going to be getting like the shining stuff here. Like there, there is a mm-hmm. lot. I don't know if it's intentional, but like, you know, we, I was like, oh, we're going to get like some all work and no play. And then the scene later when we have Thomas chasing Winslow with an axe, like also it was like very the shining to me. Hmm. I could see it, yeah. I mean, we got two men going crazy uh, with some cabin fever, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. The effects of isolation are real. Mm Mm-hmm. So he ends up not being able to find the logbook until he actually looks over at Wake, who is sleeping in his bunk, and he just happens to have it lying across his chest. But there's this moment where you think, oh, he's going to make a grab for the book. And then he sees, oh, the keys to the lighthouse are there, Mm. so maybe he's going to go for the keys. And then it seems like he might actually just kill him, because he also still has the knife out. And this is the moment that Wake wakes up, sees him looming over him, and just orders him to get back to work. He says, again, I don't know if it was intentional, but what he says to him when he sees him is, queer way to wear your shoes. And Mm -hmm. I just think it's interesting that we use the word queer um, in this scenario. Yeah, I I took it to be a sort of period-appropriate colloquialism, Mm -hmm. but also we don't use queer unintentionally in, you know, 2019. Right, right. So So. I think both work. Mm -hmm. So we get a few fast scenes pass as Winslow is, yeah, doing, he's drinking while working. It's not great. Um, He seems to be getting increasingly frustrated and angry. And this ultimately results in a masturbatory montage that includes images of him fucking the mermaid, as well as sneaking up on a blonde man that we have never seen before. So this can also uh, be re- re- going into our queer reading here. Uh, I, do, I do have another piece as well. This is Martin Shore for Video Librarian in Repressed Homosexuality in the Lighthouse. And, you know, he says, Here Winslow's psyche fragments, his mind flitting between aggressive sex with the mermaid and footage of animal insemination, mm-hmm. stabbing motions, and flashes of a mystery man. Winslow arrives at the climax with a bestial howl, but the last image we see in this hallucinatory moment is the face of that man whom Winslow is revealed to have murdered. These mm-hmm. two moments are key in charting the progression of the film's latent queerness. There are many others that hint at this growing intimacy, including Winslow snatching a glance at Wake's behind through a broken slat in the ceiling, whilst at work on their increasingly domestic arguments over their living arrangements. Yeah, it's interesting because that was actually where I leaned to the first time I saw the film. I thought, oh, it's interesting that we're getting this image of a man amidst these masturbatory fantasies. And like when we're talking masturbation, like he is going at it so hard, he looks like he's going to cry. And then when he finally either stops or finishes, seemingly he just stops. But he he howls with frustration. And it is like directly following this image of this man you're like oh is he 
upset about this man? Hmm. But it's not the first time we've seen him, actually. It's only the first time we've seen him in great detail, because right. in in the, the early, early vision with the logs like floating in the ocean, mm-hmm. there's a body in the water, and it yes. is that same bo- the person. Right, yes. We also get a juxtaposition with the mermaid then, uh, early on. So these, these connective threads in his mind um, have been there persistently, and it happens so fast, so early on, that first vision... It calls into a lot of questions about about what exactly Winslow's agenda is, because we know he wants to make money. We know it's an easy job. Like mm-hmm. he says that, and I and I believe him actually, even though he's a liar. I agree. Yeah. When we first meet him, he has an adherence to the rules that is not overly explicit, but it's it's present. Like he says that he's not drinking not just out of personal preference, but because. Like, but also he cites the rule books and so forth. He's doing whatever he can to keep a clear head. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who, in a situation where he should want to have permission to cut loose, does right. want to keep a clear head. And I think it's because of what he's running from. Because what he's running from is not just the past that he assimilated from elsewhere mm-hmm. um, or when obscured as well, but also an attempt at not going crazy again. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the association of what we will come to learn is violence. I mean, if you could believe that it's unintentional, or you can believe that it was, with sexuality is very intriguing to me, and particularly when we get the reveal of who Winslow actually is. I'm right. like, oh, I'm getting a little Patricia Highsmith, talented Mr. Ripley vibes from this as well. Well, th- th- yes, okay, that's the thing, like... If you want to really stick to the queer reading for this, you can, yeah, read him as he was obsessed with this man who he worked with in the logging industry and killed him when maybe he didn't return his his uh, feelings. Or, or he is like, so frustrated with his own homosexuality that he just killed this man to get rid of his temptation, yes. but then was so obsessed that he took over his life. Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it, it's important to note that, yeah, we get this masturbation, blah, 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 with the dude, with the mermaid. Mermaid vagina. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he destroys this figurine, which I think he thinks is kind of a totem of his, his obsession. Like, oh, if I break this, I will break the curse. Does not work. And then this is when he finds the decapitated head of a one-eyed man in the lobster trap. I always interpreted this as a hallucination, but I have seen a ton of people who say, oh no, this, this is the decapitated former lighthouse keeper that was working with thomas wake and he killed him and tossed his body into the ocean um yeah i, I read this as a hallucination too if only maybe i'm maybe my science is wrong here but i would just expect the head to be more deteriorated or decomposed mm. but maybe the water prevents that from happening i, don't know. I mean realistically it would be eaten by crabs yes, yes. but he brings it up to yes. wake he does. and and that's Really fascinating because I, I mean, in in both viewings of it, like forgetting one from the other, I really didn't. I just kind of like took it as like, oh, it's another, it's another terrible vision. But then right. when he has the audacity to like to vocalize it yeah. with like a bunch of assumptions that I hadn't necessarily put together, mm-hmm. then it's like, oh, oh, that seems maybe reasonable, maybe. And then it just, then I'm like, oh no, nothing's reasonable. <laughs> all all realities are true. Yes. And we're just deciding which one it is as an individual viewer. Yeah, like, if nothing else, this film allows for such a multiplicity of readings 
because it actively encourages it because it's not interested mm-hmm. in saying, oh, well, actually, Pattinson is the one who's right. So you can trust everything that he's saying and doing or no, he's the one who's gone cuckoo and you should be trusting Defoe's Thomas Wake character. They're both lying and we don't know how far the extent of those lies go to the point that we can't know if anything is truth or if it's all lies or who knows, right? Yeah. So we're we're up to the part that even casual audience is called queer on. And that is when the two men uh, get very drunk and they begin to sing and dance. And then the dancing goes from high speed to a slow dance and a near kiss that then turns into a brawl. So some have argued, you know, that, again, this is the most explicitly queer moment in the film. And mm-hmm. I mean... Because, yes, there's a lot of implications here. I I would argue that the film is very explicitly queer. If you are even trying to look for it, it's there. Yes. But but, but, but that being said, the fact that we have an almost kiss that doesn't Mm -hmm. follow through with an actual kiss, I've seen some critiques from people that have been like, well, it's really frustrating that in in 2019, we are still, like, backing, like, we are pushing up to the limits of queerness, but then pulling back at the last possible moment. And I don't fully agree with those statements, if only because I don't think this movie is trying to make a grand statement on queerness. If it was, I'd be more frustrated with that, but that's not really the point of this film for me. Yeah, Kat, how do you feel about the way that the film handles queerness? Do you feel like it's dancing up to the line and then coming back, or are you kind of like, oh, it's it's a demonstrable part of what the film is doing, but because it's not the central focus, I'm okay with it. Mm -hmm. I I don't think there's any part of this movie that, that said that they, that it wanted to be an explicit statement on sexuality Mm. or the, the sexuality of these characters. I, I think that it is a potent analysis of solitude and different, uh, deteriorations of mental health. Right. And, Audiences will be naturally challenged to ask what the sexuality of these men is because it will help them understand their relationship with each other. Right. But the fact is they don't understand their relationship with themselves, let alone each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the thing that prevents them from communicating that the entire time is toxic masculinity, mm. which like the ultimate if the film is addressing one thing clearly, it is addressing the behaviors of toxic masculinity yeah. and what the inherent uh, aspect of, of testosterone to always like be out on top, like what that does to the human mind. And, you know, in, in that moment where there's like, they can both lose themselves for a little bit and think that they're in a kind space where physical affection between two people is something that's real in that strange drunken stupor where their lips almost kiss. Mm-hmm. And then of course the next thing they do is they get into a fight yep. and that's not the yes. film making a statement on, on homosexuality, but it is like, it is two extremely masculine beings in a society that definitely doesn't want them to have a like physical relationship of any kind having the only one that they know how to have and maybe they're both extremely confused about what those feelings are though of course one of them happens to be a seasoned sailor but right (laughs) you know but the the one thing they can agree on as men is that they could beat the shit out of each other oh and that's that's not gay yeah (laughs) yeah it felt like the only way that this scene could end would be for them to either fuck or fight and the fact that ultimately Eggers chooses the fight feels to me a bit more in keeping with the film that we've gotten because 
I, I don't think it's a repulsion so much as a, we don't know what we're doing. So we revert back to our gendered norms, which is hypermasculinity, toxic masculinity, fight, yeah. fight, fight, instead of talking or doing something more intimate. But even saying those are one of two options you can go through, I also never for once thought they were actually going to follow through with any kind of sexual thing in this mo- in this scene or in this movie in general. Hmm. That's interesting to me because I do find that this movie is crazy horny. Yes. I just, I mean, I guess maybe given the time period and again, the societal standards in the 1890s, I didn't, I mean, again, not to say that men weren't having sex with each other in the 1890s because oh, they, they were, were yeah. <laughs> but these, these particular men, I just didn't see that happening based on what I already seen from these characters. Well, interesting. The, there's a thread between this and the witch that's pretty clear. They're both historical fiction pieces about solitude. Mm-hmm. They both have Lovecraftian obs- obscurity, which right. is to say that things are made worse by how much of them you don't see and that okay. your mind does the rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's uh, perversion via repression and isolation. Yeah. So like, and, and by perversion, I don't mean like a moral judgment. I mean like a kind of horniness that is clouded by the fact that there's a sort of societal inclination to not really understand what sex and sexuality is or how mm-hmm. to interpret it at all. Yeah. So it's like being a guilty child, but not knowing really what you're being guilty about. And, and it, it's, it's, it's desperate. It's confused. And, and I'd say that just from personal experience, isolation does kind of beget a certain horniness uh, mm-hmm. And when it's under such disgusting and uncomfortable circumstances in a disgusting and uncomfortable time, it's just going to come out looking and feeling as horrible as this movie. Well, right. I think to even like yeah, you're right, isolation, which leads to boredom, which leads to mm. a lot of horniness. I mean, again, like I mean, I'm only speaking for myself here, but like you know, the number of times I've been bored and just decided to masturbate out of boredom has absolutely been something that's happened multiple times <laughs> in my life. So I'm sure it would happen with these men as well. And and it's more socially acceptable now, right? I mean, if you're thinking yeah, I'm, about... I'm, I'm announcing it on a podcast, so yes, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> well, I'm more just thinking like, you know, these, these men are forced into such tight confines. And if they perchance happen to reflect on their sexual inclinations or interests, you know, it could just be, oh, well, this is the only other person in a very, very fixed geography that I could possibly be with. But also... I don't have the language. I don't have the nuance or the capacity to unpack this. So, but also I do need to get my literal rocks off. Like I would like to get off this rock, but also I would like to jack off. I was like, wait a minute, your literal rocks. What? Um, so uh, the scenes are kind of backing up in terms of like either big moments or big revelations, because almost immediately following this, we do get a kind of candid confessional when Winslow reveals that his real name is Tom Howard. So yes, for folks who are playing the name game at home, that yep. makes a Thomas and a Tom. Just like in Wales. <gasps> oh, <laughs> uh, did not put that together. Thank you, Kat. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, we we get this backstory that Winslow, I mean, the way he talks about it, he was uninvolved and he happened to see this man who was named Winslow get killed in a in a logging accident. And then he 
took his money and took his identity because it was the only respectable thing that he could do so that he could go off and get a job. And you're just like, well, that doesn't entirely add up. The mental j- hoops <laughs> that he would have to jump through to Full get from gymnastics, point A to point B. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because he's, he's drunk enough that he says all of that, mm-hmm. but he somehow still manages to attempt to produce, like to realize that he shouldn't have said it. So he needs to build an alibi in there and it's very pathetic and bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, one thing that we haven't really talked about this was interesting to me because it has definitely changed, like this narrative has changed over time since the film's release. But there were people who criticize Pattinson for not being up to par in terms of his accent work in this. And I have always interpreted this as a very deliberate choice, that his accent shifts and comes in and mm-hmm. out and is stronger and weaker and seems to change uh, like geographical location over the course of the film, not only because he has admitted that he has traveled a lot and tried different kinds of jobs, but I think it's actually the character who we're going to continue to call Winslow for the rest of the episode to kind of keep it clear. But I interpret this as Winslow trying on different personalities, and when he drinks, it changes because he can't keep the accent straight. Well, and when you have Eggers, again, back in my production, the very first draft, of, or second draft of this script, when he's like, yeah, I wanted to make a film about identity. Mm-hmm. Well, at the end of the day, again, even apply this queer reading to it, right? Like, for a lot of queer folks, we struggle with identity for a large portion of our lives, so we adapt and we we, we put on facades in mm-hmm. front of people. That is exactly what Winslow is doing here, and now we've reached a point where um, he doesn't know who he is. It's right. like the stepfather, right? Like, who am I here? Right. He's he's trying on different personas, and sometimes that accompanies different accents and so yes, on. Yes, exactly. Also, I, I can't for a second believe that a technically proficient director and writer like Eggers would let a shoddy accent yeah. through. <laughs> like, he would say, no, you're not doing it right. We need to perfect this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The timing of it did really feel extremely intentional, especially based on the regions he said he was operating mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is then followed, as you suggested, Kat, he seems to realize what he's done because he hears Wake whispering to him, why'd you spill your beans, Tommy? And he discovers the real Winslow's body on the rocks. And then there's almost like this tableau moment. Like, yes! There's been a couple of times where the characters seem to be directly looking through the camera as though they are aware and they're breaking the fourth wall. But this is almost a work of art where he is crouched over the real Winslow's body and then he becomes transfixed in the kind of laser beam it like eyes of wake and a lot of people interpret this as a reference to Proteus like the god Proteus well I I wouldn't be surprised if this is just a recreation of some painting see I know I know that this is a reference to somebody's work I don't know if it's a direct piece but I don't I can't recall the artist I wouldn't be surprised if this is like, hey, we have the painting cool. We're going to shoot it just like this. Because, yeah, this it holds on this tableau of, like, the nude form uh, mm-hmm. of, of Defoe just, like, holding Pattinson as he's, like, you know, over his body. Yeah. So there is there is a visual reference that that does mm-hmm. pull from. Sasha Schneider is the artist. And it's not it is not one to one in terms of the uh, like the posturing, but the whole like light beam stare mm-hmm. uh, thing. It's. Very similar. Interesting. 
Oh, I'm looking at yes, I'm looking at it now. Oh yeah, it almost looks like uh, the the beam of light is coming out of a ghost face. Oh, weird. Yeah. Hmm. I'll send it to you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So so again, this is a kind of moment where we as an audience go, wait, what? is happening is this real it can't possibly be real and yet yes it asks us to reframe okay so can we trust what we've seen before this is that real i don't know anymore well this will continue because we're about to get to this whole destroying of the lifeboat scenario yeah i mean i mean you could read this as winslow has now freaked himself out so badly or he's so desperate to get away from his own confession that he's he's going to try braving this storm by taking the lifeboat out and making a go of it and wake sabotages this so he runs out with this axe like the shining he smashes up the lifeboat and then he chases uh winslow back into the lodging and then when they end up having to confront each other wake turns it around and accuses winslow of being the one who destroyed the lifeboat and chasing him with the axe and you're like wait but what yeah and yeah So this is when Winslow brings out that accusatory tone himself and says, well, I found the head of this guy in the lobster trap, so I know that you're a killer too. And Wake says, well, no, you're the one who's been doing all of this. Like, you're the one who's going mad because you confessed and it's eating you up inside. And he, he even goes so far as to suggest that the whole island, are, are you even here with me right now? Or are you back in Kennedy? at the logging <laughs> i was like i reject that pronunciation of canada <laughs> <sighs> yeah so narcissists Ooh. will invent realities okay around them either for their own entertainment or, or to, fit, to fit what their thought process already is yeah, telling them yeah more more likely to to cement their reality mm-hmm. and we have two people who are very disturbed in in combat with each other. Cause like, it seems highly likely that Winslow is just off his rocker having visions, Mm -hmm. but it does seem more likely that it hasn't been as long as wake is telling him that it's been. Yeah. And that, that he's doing that to maintain control because he knows that Winslow is like, he's slipping malleable. Yeah. Yeah. And he's been taking advantage of that the whole time. So here we have both of them attempting to alter reality around each other and within themselves, which is uh, very disturbing to watch and and very hard to put together and puts the audience in a difficult situation of of feeling just as fractured as these folks are. The only difference is is that these characters, by virtue of their mental stability – might feel more anchored in what they believe than the audience does yeah mm-hmm. yeah like we are so unmoored at this point i i feel like our natural allegiance is still to pattinson at this point but it's only because he has been our kind of audience proxy or the person that we spent more time with but it it's really starting to get confusing particularly when you realize oh he's also been drinking profusely throughout most of this back part of the film right so he could be drunk he could be hallucinating a bunch of the stuff like i i think it's a step too far to suggest oh you're not really even on the island you're still back in the logging uh camp that to me is wake 
just absolutely gaslighting him and being like, I'm a bit of a shit. I'm trolling you right now. <laughs> it's also it's also Eggers saying, like, at the very least, let's throw out these stupid theories I know we're going to hear. <laughs> and how many people have actually latched onto that? At least a couple that I've seen. <clears throat> <laughs> you know what? If you can make the argument for it, have at it, as always. I mean, that's half the fun, right? Yeah. So I do love the fact that we get all of this. Like, we're, we're torpedoing potentially the entire film in some audience's minds. And then we just hit the brakes and we say, you know what? We're out of booze. So we need to make some monkey pump moonshine, which is honey mixed with uh, turpentine. And I cannot imagine how much that is going to fuck you up. It's not going to be good. It's not going to help very much. (laughs) I mean, what we see of them is they're, they're laughing and drinking while they're cowering under a table as the storm reaches its apex. So... It seems to give them a bit of a detente so that they can figure their shit out, but it's only temporary. I had to Google because, full disclosure, I, I heard, I've heard the word turpentine, but I wasn't exactly sure what it was. And I was like, well, that can't, that can't be good to ingest, no. clearly. It, it is toxic, but apparently a lot of times like you won't actually have cases of turpentine poisoning because it's very slow acting. And it'll actually ruin your sense of smell and taste like Ew. basically cluing you in beforehand oh i need to stop what i'm doing because i'm ingesting something that's doing this to me but um i guess in this case when they don't have any food to taste right. <laughs> it doesn't matter <laughs> so one of the things that i really appreciate particularly as we make our way into the kind of emotional and physical climax of the film mm-hmm. is that the storm which was kind of the the physical manifestation of all of this dies at this point it is no longer a determining factor and it now just comes down to the character psychology yeah so in the morning the storm is done and we see you know the the house is basically destroyed the lodging is completely upended there's a couple of inches of water at least and this is when Winslow discovers the logbook floating by. So he starts to read it. We don't get to see what's inside it, but he looks very disgruntled by it. So we come to hear that it is filled with nothing but criticism about his work ethic. And at one point even includes the fact that he should be uh, given severance with no pay. Yeah, and then we get this glorious and again, cathartic monologue from Pattinson. Mm hmm culminating in his final final complaint about all the farts he has had to endure (laughs) and i have to ask y'all like i mean here's the thing are you gonna ask us about farts (laughs) yeah well because farts to any audience are going to be inherently funny right and right now we have this kind of prestige multi-hyphenate genre film because i I don't know how i would even begin to classify this film in a genre Mm -hmm. but filled with farts so I don't know. Like, obviously, it's an intentional thing because we were having these things in here for some reason. But, but what do y'all think is if there is any significance to the farts in this movie and why they would be included here? Yeah, I, I got something for this. Okay. Ooh, okay. So the first the first interaction before any words are exchanged between Wake and Winslow is that Winslow goes upstairs. We hear Wake pissing in a bedpan Mm -hmm. and then then we don't see him entirely (laughs) but what happens to see he farts directly on him like at face level (laughs) fantastic and that is animal intimacy that is that is reducing human beings like human beings think of themselves ourselves as not animals like Mm -hmm. we have an entire 
culture based around believing that we're somehow separate from every other species in the planet. Right. And there, there is a reading to be had of this entire piece um, regarding humanity in its quest to be separate from the natural world here on this out, remote outpost where, you know, nothing but the creatures that uh, evolved to dwell there should be living, just belligerently attempting to exist against the forces of, of all of this. Mm-hmm. And when they're in isolation, these two men are forced to confront, like, immediately their own animal stinks and Defoe having or um, Wake having been there, you know, for who knows how long mm-hmm. right. is very, very, very comfortable with himself and both in a sort of like a dominance, animal dominance assertion farts on Winslow. Yeah. But then also Winslow has to experience that any kind of civilization he's come from is not here. This is this is a place where uh, this is a place filled with farts and piss. Right. And, and, and overflowing cisterns. Yeah, I I can totally see that. And it's probably just because I spent a bunch of time earlier this year watching that show The Wilds that I've got like Lord of the Flies sort of stuck in my brain. But it piggybacks onto that idea that it's like, oh, when you go to an island and you get cut off from civilization, you immediately lose all pretense of politeness and civilized behavior, right? Like we're reduced to our basic instincts and who we truly are. And in this case, yeah, I I think it's not just, oh, okay, well, human beings fart. We are just like animals. This is Defoe playing a power move, right? Like you are going to eat my farts because I am bigger (laughs) and better than you. And only shortly after that, the mermaid icon shows up. Mm. And the the first thing that happens with with it is like it's mysterious and, and interesting. But uh, Winslow immediately just starts rubbing the mermaid's crotch. Like there's there's a, a, a ta- the tactile sense of like, uh, oh, a feminine icon, a sexual thing, uh, immediately rubbing it. And like that's in, in the same room where that fart is still lingering. Mm. So there's all of this uh, very visceral bodily energy that's happening. Yeah. This was fascinating. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like, Trace, you asked this as like, so what's with all the farts in this no, movie? <laughs> I'm really glad. I was not expecting that. That was profound fart work, y'all. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Caption of this episode, fart work. <laughs> well, I think it's also important that like this is the moment where wake actually calls winslow a dog right like he dresses him down he almost uh i i put in my notes he effeminizes him which i'm not sure is an actual word but he he reduces him to the source of his labor he he's very belligerent about him and then he he literally calls him his dog which is going to pay off in a couple of scenes from now when the tables get turned so they do end up fighting at this point, and it's not the kind of cutesy brawl that we got before. This actually feels like it has some stakes behind it. Like, we've reached a boiling point, and these men could do some serious damage to each other. And just in case you wanted to know where Winslow's head is at, <laughs> as he's punching the shit out of Wake, we see Wake take the form of this blonde dude, the actual... Ephraim. The actual Ephraim, thank you, as well as the mermaid, ooh, as well as this manifestation of like Proteus with the god of the sea with tentacles and so on. 
the shot of where we're like at uh it wakes pov looking up at winslow choking him mm-hmm. and we have all these tentacles like yeah. fanning out behind winslow in this almost like peacock shape mm-hmm. <laughs> it, well it, it specifically calls back to that defoe monologue who starts with saying hark triton hark yes yes like so and he he describes essentially the way he describes triton is how he then appears in this scene mm-hmm. oh. Yes. Yeah, it, it's really good payoff for a lot of the mythology. And we'll, we'll talk a little tiny bit about the end of the film. We'll get back to that. There's full on academic articles about how this film is a manifestation of like the Prometheus myth and that kind of stuff. So like, mm-hmm. it it's embedded in there and Eggers has done his homework in that regard. Yeah. So uh, he ends up beating the crap out of Wake, but he doesn't <laughs> kill him. But he has broken him, so now this is when the power play switches, and now Winslow is in charge, and Wake is kind of more submissive. So uh, I wrote in my notes, Winslow does some power play, so he walks the older man out on a leash to the pit where they dug up the moonshine and the, the supplies for rationing. And then he buries the older man, and Wake curses him a second time. Do we have, I mean, we don't have to have anything we don't have, but do we have any comments on the pup play in this? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So here's the thing. I can't really think of another point in the film where Winslow is as anchored mm-hmm. as when he is officiating this pup play that's happening. Mm. When he decides that he has power and he steps into this this role where he's using very specific language he's calling wake i think what boy or something like that do they ever use the terms alpha or beta at all no no okay because i I know that's common in the pup world as well it is like boy and dog and stuff yeah yeah there's, there's certain language that wake uses for winslow that's like not acknowledging him as an individual with a name Mm -hmm. but the dialogue that's used when he's commanding wake the dog is not the same the demeanor that he has is not the same he as a character is performing a role that he is weirdly i don't know if he's comfortable in it but it is more realized than when he is being himself Mm. and it makes me wonder if he has experienced this before like maybe as a child like maybe on the other end of being someone's dog in different ways. So you think that this is Winslow mimicking behavior that he was subjected to at another point? Yeah, I think this hmm. is him stepping into a performance right. that he saw someone else do that he was on the receiving end of. Interesting. Okay. That That is fascinating because I almost get the same read as Wake. Like the first time I saw this, this was the most confusing scene to me because I didn't understand why Wake subjected himself to it. Like, it's a fun part of Defoe's performance, but he almost looks energized by this. He's almost into this performance. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll play your dog. I'll climb up this hill. I'll get into this grave and let you bury me in the dirt. And it only seems to be when he's on the cusp of being buried that Wake realizes, no, okay, I got to invoke another curse. This dude is going to get his eventually. But I did find the power reversal intriguing, but I didn't always understand the role play. And I'm not sure that there's room for any understanding there, really, because mm-hmm. you're right. He was very excited about it, and I and I don't know what to make of that. I mean, I mean, it wasn't like we weren't seeing genuine enthusiasm. You could take it as being like he's doing a good job because he really did get the shit beat out of him right. just then, and he doesn't want it to happen again. Absolutely. But is that is that a response to him still being a little drunk, 
or uh or just being a crazy old coot Mm -hmm. like it's hard to say because once he gets once he gets in that hole which happened way easier than you think it would have right yeah then we then we get back to another soliloquy that that feels right on target for everything else but that whole exchange is otherwise very weird it's like they've both fit into these grooves Mm -hmm. and it's happening the energy is 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 off but it's not because of the nature of the film, I can't tell if it's wrong. I can't tell if it's done poorly or if it's if there's something there. Yeah, like I I don't read this as a failure of the film or like, oh, there's a misstep happening here. It's more I'm intrigued by because it just feels very different from everything that we've seen before. Yeah. Okay, so the pup play has been done and seemingly Winslow has won and Wake is nearly dead or dead from what we could gather so winslow goes back to collect the key so he can finally claim his prize and get up to the lighthouse but before he can do anything we've got one more physical battle it's very Mm. uh a horror slasher film finale so wake ends up attacking him with an axe he gets winslow in the shoulder and then winslow manages to smack him in the face and then he just buries the axe into him off screen so we never really see the damage but he does get completely covered in blood and there are chunks so yeah oh he did yeah like the brain mass like chunks of hair So this is when Winslow climbs up the lighthouse. He's he's not in great shape, but you know what? He's he's going to get there. So he uh, ends up unlocking it. He gets to finally see the true glory of the rotating light. <laughs> and I've seen people try to break this down as like, how is he feeling? What is he experiencing? Because it does seem to start off by... Orgasmic. Elation, orgasm, you know, joy, like just unbridled, uh, you know, he he's seeing into something that he never expected to see, and then all of a sudden he begins to scream. And the scream is distorted, a little bit lynching, if we are being honest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he stops screaming so that he can fall all the way down the stairs to the bottom. And some people have said that they can hear his leg breaking, which is why some people do read him and wake as almost a parallels of each other, like a future version. It's like, oh, that's where the break happens. And then oh. Winslow will become wake as a result. But like actually become wake or like oh, become know. like <laughs> the stand in for wake. Sure. The next shot undermines that entirely. Yes. I think so too. Even if it's a metaphor, it undermines it entirely. Yeah. I do love this overhead shot, though, watching him, like, fall down these stairs. It's uh-huh. really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I I just find it really interesting because a lot of this kind of last act also reminds me of Annihilation and just the mm-hmm. kind of, like, mental the deterioration. <laughs> there's, there's a lighthouse battle sequence where you're kind of fighting yourself or a variation of yourself. And I'm just like, well, there's an interesting double bill. i have a double bill recommendation but oh okay it wouldn't be a cat appearance on horror queers if i didn't bring a bunch of extra media to the film that we're talking about fantastic (laughs) well we're almost there because we've only got this one Mm -hmm. final scene left so we fade to white and then the last image that we see is of winslow he is blind so just like our friendly seagull, just like the potential former lighthouse keeper, he is nude and he is being feasted on by seagulls who are eating his entrails. Yep. 
So I'm going to bring in a piece from Diana Marin called Delving into the Psychology and Mythology of the Lighthouse. I'm only taking a small little chunk of this and I do kind of recommend the piece because there's a, a lot more about the mythology in there that we didn't go into a great deal of detail. Mm-hmm. But Diana says of this final portion, perhaps Thomas, whom we have called Winslow this entire episode, is not ready to face his trauma. Perhaps the design of his mind and its fragmentation is his curse, which is exacerbated rather than healed by the light, or his hubris defying the will of the gods and antagonizing the dead soul of a sailor, and murderous acts inevitably ruined him. So this is very much a a faded end resolution even if you look at it like wait so he rolled out of the lighthouse and then stripped naked like no folks that's that's not what's happening here there was only one possible outcome he had to be killed and in this case it's like the beautiful symbolism of being blinded and eaten by his nemesis Jeez. any thoughts on this final scene i mean he's he is that oceanic flotsam that detritus that humanity failing in its attempt to be where it shouldn't and just being eaten alive by that you know like he he's he's the half alive fish after the hurricane on the beach like gulping for air and or water um as the seagulls come mm-hmm. like that's that's what he is in the wake of the storm he is reduced to the things that wash up on the shore wow see i i think i like that better I think the most common traditional reading of this is if you take the Prometheus, the human being who dared to steal fire from the gods, and then he was captured and punished. Basically, he he would have a large bird come and rip out his liver every day, and then it would heal over, he wouldn't die, and then it would come back and do the exact same fucking thing to him the next day. So in this case, the fire is the light of the lighthouse, and the birds are the seagulls, and they're eating his entrails because that's the standard for the liver. But I'm like, yeah, that's, I don't know, it's almost too obvious to me. Well, that's okay. (laughs) Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I think I like cats better because it it reinforces the mermaid imagery and the sea imagery and that kind of stuff. Like, it feels like a better infusion of symbolism and myth. Right, right, right. They did say that there was a lot of trouble figuring out what that third act was going to be. Oh, um, I could imagine. Robert Eggers and and Max Eggers. And it's funny because, you know, this started as an adaptation of a Poe story. And the Poe story is so fragmented, it's barely even anything at all like it's not it's not a complete story it's barely a sketch of an idea there's no outline it's just a thing that was being written that ceased to be written and didn't have much context in it Hmm. and i i I think that the high poe content generally shows up in the third act and oh you know if if this could be a loose like there's a quote mentioning like oh it's it's silly that i thought that i could you know finish finish what Poe started like that was really childish of me or whatever I think they did I think they did a great job I think they did a great job I think like with all like the the ominous birds and and secret paths and mm-hmm. two men backstabbing each other I think it's like yeah. I think they did a fantastic job of finishing up that fragment of a Poe thing hmm. and in terms of you know interpreting mythology and so forth it's all there like it, it's all it's all mixed together because part of the obscurity where you know like Lovecraft thrived was showing pieces of things and saying that you can't know them and right. in, in film uh you either deal in intense obscurity like the way that in the mouth of madness will show you some really really cool animatronic monsters but only for a split second right. enough for you to like fill in the blanks in your mind but with this it's showing you things very plainly but what it's not showing you is the meaning 
Mm-hmm. And mm. and it, it knows what it's doing in that sense. When Typically when David Lynch has an idea about something, it will be coded, not in a way that, that I don't think he necessarily really wants people to to piece it apart but that he actually has seems to have a this is maybe cheeky for me to say but he (laughs) seems to have a rather analytical way of thinking yeah where some of the some of the biggest clues to understanding what his intentions are are spoken plainly to the audience in a way that's so obvious they tend to not notice (laughs) but in this case i think that all these pieces are there meshed together in a way that's dreamlike and feels fascinating and the feeling is the point there is not an objective aside from creating something that will like a dream disturb you and will feel like a parable because all the pieces are there but what it means is in the interpretation and that's so fascinating Mm. cat because if we come all the way back to the opening of the episode when you talked about how this movie made you feel and it really affected you and i love the fact that you said i can't even recall what it was but you can remember the feeling and that's exactly what you just elucidated upon Yes. Yes. <laughs> Cyclical. Yay. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, that's the lighthouse. That is the lighthouse. Do we have any final thoughts before we wrap this up, y'all? Cat and as the guest of I mean, I know you've just <laughs> said something, but but by all means, like fit, close us out if you have any final thoughts. Yeah, um, so I haven't read much William Hope Hodgson, but that's an author who I was surprised wasn't mentioned in the the list of things Mm -hmm. that the Eggers said that they referenced because Hodgson was a sailor and a horror writer who Mm. has a series of link tales forming what's called the Sargasso Sea Stories and he is the guy who inspired one of the guys who inspired Lovecraft so here's a person writing sea stories in like 1908 1912 whose work influences the guy that that they're reading and I would be shocked if these folks in their intense Mm -hmm research didn't go back to Hodgson because he's the obvious choice here. Right. And I have two books of Hodgson's on my shelf. I haven't cracked them yet. I don't have a frame of reference. I can't talk about where they're clearly referencing something <laughs> that was done. But I would bet that Hodgson was a, a major component of this, maybe even more than Lovecraft. Hmm. Just a hunch. Yeah, if listeners know, be sure to cue us in. Or if you've Please. read him, do let us know if you see like parallels to his work. Yeah. Yeah start a Twitter conversation or something. I I want to, I want to know more about this. I want to, I want to understand the parallels if they exist. Mm, okay. Otherwise, otherwise I have the, uh, double feature follow up. Yes. Yes. Hit us with your double feature. Yes. So the lighthouse immediately made me think of another film. Guy Madden's, uh, 2006 movie brand upon the brain. Have either of you seen this? No, uh, I should have because Madden is Canadian, but I haven't seen that one. <laughs> yeah. Like, Queer Canadian cinema mm-hmm. that is one of the few things you can compare The Lighthouse to. It has a Criterion release. I don't know what the status of it is right now, because I'll, I'll tell you about the film, and you'll realize, ah, this is quite weird. So it is a silent movie, feature length, that, like, filmed in a way that is highly indicative of, like, let's say European silent films from the early 20s and late 10s. Okay. Um, very fanciful, rough around the edges on purpose, uh, filmed in a really neat uh, style that's very fast and repetitious, but in a in a compelling way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it toured as a live event to cities around the world, featuring an eleven piece orchestra, a live foley team with all the like of plates course. and celery and everything. Yes, a castrato, 
and a celebrity narrator that would change nightly. Ooh. Oh, wow. So um, there are folks like Isabella Rossellini, Laurie Anderson, Crispin Glover that were doing these readings. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I happened to be in New York during one of these screenings back then, and I saw Crispin Glover do it. Oh, my gosh. With a, with a beautiful look down into the pit where all the Foley work was happening right in front of me. Oh, <sighs> the dream. So, yeah, it was incredible. It, it is on Criterion. The DVD is available. It's on a blue, but it is readily available for the $32. Cool. Well, here's the thing about it. When you get the DVD, you get to choose your vocal track. Oh, that's cool. Uh, some of them pulled from the live events. Oh, neat. Okay. So you'll hear you'll hear all of the, the Foley work and the instrumentation and singing, etc. as it was performed that night. You'll hear the pages turn. You'll hear the audience react. Yeah, folks, if, you, if you've never seen a Guy Madden film, he is super kooky and weird. Like, his ideas are very off the page, but he pulls a lot from the history of cinema. Uh, I think most people would probably know, uh, Kat, I'm hoping you can help me out because I can't remember the name of the <laughs> film, but it has Isabella Rossellini. She's the big name. I don't think she's the main character, but she is a woman who hosts a major event in this small town, and she has two empty legs that she fills with beer okay so i haven't seen that one, ah, but damn. it could be saddest music in the world yes that's it okay this i i didn't know madden before i saw uh this movie and i was immediately like endeared because it was just uh, so compelling now the vibe of it it's like the lighthouse plus a wes anderson movie because mm-hmm. it's really quirky and yes. funny and and eccentric plus the 1932 mad scientist horror film Dr. X, which is by Michael Curtis, the director of Casablanca. Oh, okay. Have you folks seen Dr. X? No. no, no, but, but I've heard of it. Highly recommended. Like, it's one of the, the yummiest, aesthetically speaking, uh, pre-code movies that there is. And it was shot in a two-color technic, uh, technicolor treatment. So basically like cyan and like a, a sort of like redder magenta. Mm-hmm. Um, and they clash together to make this just beautiful like aqua hues, kind of like a, I don't know, a different take on bisexual lighting that's less blue <laughs> and more green. And... Recently, they rediscovered and remastered, refurbished a um, an original two-color print of it. So you can get a Blu-ray now that has that transfer. And it's just such a fun, weird, and glorious. Like, the aesthetic of it is outstanding. Um, weird sci-fi movie. Before, nice. before the horror film genre had really started to understand itself, movies like Dr. X helped create the visual language of horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, science fiction came first, folks. <laughs> And so, yeah, Brand Upon the Brain pulls from, like, all that stuff. It's got a lighthouse. Uh, it's got it's got throwing rocks and seagulls. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it's, awesome. it's a, an eerie story of, of isolation, relatively speaking. There's a lot of characters on this island. But it, it's intensely queer. This is an intensely queer, like, eerie science film. There's an overbearing mother. There's a girl from, like, an adventure series of books, like a girl and a brother, like, solve mysteries and stuff. Hmm. And... She shows up on the island as, like, a solo force, but then there's this cute girl, and she's like, hmm, if I pretend to be my brother, oh, no. <laughs> uh, I could kiss her, and she proceeds to pretend to be her brother for most of the film. And then right. the young boy, who had such a crush on the sister, also has a crush on the brother. Oh, no. <laughs> hmm. It so, almost sounds like we should add that to the list, because that's I know, right? It was like, just put it to cover list, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> it is very, very, very good, and uh, everyone should watch it. Uh, especially That's... if you're looking for a palate cleanser for the lighthouse, because it, it is like similar aesthetic, but different experience. 
yeah, yeah. Um, it's yeah, it's it's sexier and it's much more sordid, um, but also spooky and weird. Ooh, sordid. That that that's a good way to get my attention. I was right going to say, you just ping trace. <laughs> <laughs> Forget what everything else you just said. Sordid. That's all you need. <laughs> I'm curious, Trace. Do you have a double bill that you would imagine? Um. <sighs> Not at the top of my head, but honestly, I, I will go back and re-recommend The Wild Boy, just because I think it's a very interesting film. It Basically, it, it is a 2017 French film by Bertrand Mandico, um, set in the beginning of the 20th century on an island in, uh, on the island of La Réunion. Uh, it's about five adolescent boys from wealthy families who commit a brutal crime. As I said, they rape and murder their teacher. Uh, they are in turn taken by a Dutch captain for rehabilitation on his dilapidated sailboat, who sail for a tropical island on which they will secretly be changed into women. So, oh, um, notably also, all of the five male protagonists in the film are played by female actors. That's how I know that. Okay, yes. I saw a trailer for this. Oh, it looks so good. It is, yeah. I mean, again, we're just talking about the weird things, hallucinatory things happening on an island. This is your one, and we're keeping the queer theme. This is going to be it. Um, It is not going to be a film for everyone. It is a challenging film. Right. (laughs) A lot of weird things going on, but it's also gorgeous, and it is... It is a very rare experience. It's a unique experience. Okay. Also sounds like it should go on the fucking list. It should. It should. (laughs) Excellent. I love these. Mm Mm-hmm. And what about you, Joe? Close us out. Well, I'll stick with my my double bill of Annihilation and maybe throw in some talented Mr. Ripley as a palate cleanser that film is not exactly (laughs) happy and nice either but at least you can feel warm and bathe in the beauty of like the costume design and that kind of stuff yeah well all right everyone so this has been the lighthouse and before we announce what we're covering next week uh cat first of all thank you for coming on to talk about this with us and uh i mean let everyone know uh tell us about your 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 uh, your podcasts well uh you can find me at cat blackard that's cat like meow basically everywhere except Twitter, where I am Neon Feline. Most importantly, you can find my horror comedy audio drama, The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program, on your favorite podcast player. Each season is a standalone story of 1920s-era Lovecraftian terror, with queer themes and big heart amidst all this, you know, squamous grotesquities. Our next season, Night at Howling House, starts up September 14th. It's about a group of kids being dared to spend the night in a supposedly haunted house. But what's in this house is 1,000 times worse than a ghost. So uh, if you're into 1980s Kids in Peril Adventures and Stephen King, you're going to want to check this out. You can find out more about the show at CthulhuMystery.com. If you dig all the cummy uh, mermaid lusting of the lighthouse, please do slither on over and check out our weird tales. Nice. That's cool. Really, And we will link to all of those in the show notes, everybody. So if you are curious, please go check those out. But if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. Join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. Uh, find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. And go to our YouTube channel to, I mean, look at our interviews with horror filmmakers. Look at our Horror Queers monthly hangouts where we talk about random topics uh, with our viewers. Um, it's real fun. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We're almost to September, but since we've still got a week left in August, uh, head over and subscribe today to get episodes on A24's new murder mystery, Bodies, 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 Netflix's Resident Evil TV series, 
Peacock's original queer horror film, They Slash Them, Dan Trachtenberg's new entry into the Predator franchise, Prey, streaming on Hulu, and of course, our audio commentary on Paul W.S. Anderson's Event Horizon, just in time for its 25th, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, anniversary. Wow. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Um, but Joe, mm-hmm. what are we talking about next week? Well, we're not quite done with men who aren't uh, fully open to expressing their feelings <laughs> with one another, but we're going to introduce some graboids into the mix, Trace. So we are going to talk about the original Tremors. Oh, I'm so excited. This is, this is one of those like formative horror movies for me growing up because it was PG-13. Uh, and let's talk about the glories of practical effects. Yes, but not yet, because we are not there yet. So until next week, everyone, we can cross out the lighthouse. Indeed, and cross out horror queers. 